Darwin became good friends, but they quarreled, notably about slavery, which Darwin detested. The world was changing, and the two young men reacted very differently. Fitzroy believed that the Bible is literally true, and during the voyage he tried to find evidence to vindicate that belief. He viewed change as a threat. But Darwin had accepted the discoveries of modern biblical criticism and natural science. He was much more inclined to view change as a good thing. Like his contemporaries, Darwin was profoundly impressed by the accomplishments of Newton and other physicists. The laws of nature could explain a great deal, and an ambitious young biologist might even discover the laws of life. But Darwin assumed that those laws are ordained by God, and that life itself is miraculous. Nobody anticipated the historical view of life that Darwin's name later symbolized. Darwin's mother had died when he was only eight years old. His father, an eminent and wealthy physician, wanted his two sons to become respectable professional men. Darwin later recounted his difficulties with conventional education. As I was doing no good at school, my father wisely took me away at a rather earlier age than usual and sent me in October 1825 to Edinburgh University with my brother, where I stayed for two years or sessions. My brother was completing his medical studies, though I do not believe he ever really intended to practice, and I was sent there to commence them. But soon after this period, I became convinced from various small circumstances that my father would leave me property enough to subsist on with some comfort, though I never imagined that I should be so rich a man as I am. But my belief was sufficient to check any strenuous effort to learn medicine. Darwin was 16 years old when he went to Edinburgh. He became acquainted with local scientists and attended their meetings. After having spent two sessions in Edinburgh, my father perceived, or he heard from my sisters, that I did not like the thought of being a physician, so he proposed that I should become a clergyman. He was very properly vehement against my turning into an idle sporting man, which then seemed my probable destination. Actually, many 19th century clergymen were part-time naturalists, and the young Darwin may have had this in mind. As it was decided that I should be a clergyman, it was necessary that I should go to one of the English universities and take a degree. During the three years which I spent at Cambridge, my time was wasted, as far as the academical studies were concerned, as completely as at Edinburgh and at school. Considering how fiercely I have been attacked by the Orthodox, it seems ludicrous that I once intended to be a clergyman. Nor was this intention and my father's wish ever formally given up but died a natural death when, on leaving Cambridge, I joined the Beagle as naturalist. But Darwin's extracurricular studies were not wasted. He read widely, collected insects, and spent a lot of time talking with scientists, including the professor of botany, John Stevens Henslow. He took field trips and planned an expedition to the Canary Islands.
On returning home from my short geological tour in North Wales, I found a letter from Henslow informing me that Captain Fitzroy was willing to give up part of his own cabin to any young man who would volunteer to go with him without pay as naturalist to the voyage of the Beagle. I was instantly eager to accept the offer, but my father strongly objected, adding the words fortunate for me, if you can find any man of common sense who advises you to go, I will give my consent. My uncle thought it would be wise in me to accept the offer. My father always maintained that he was one of the most sensible men in the world, and he at once consented in the kindest manner. I had been rather extravagant at Cambridge, and to console my father said that I should be deuced clever to spend more than my allowance whilst on board the Beagle. But he answered with a smile, but they all tell me you are very clever. Darwin's uncle was Josiah Wedgwood II of the Wedgwood Pottery Firm. After the voyage, Darwin married Josiah's youngest daughter, Emma. On board the Beagle, there was plenty of time to read and to think. Fitzroy gave Darwin the first volume of a book by Charles Lyell, known by the lengthy title Principles of Geology, being an attempt to explain the former changes of the Earth's surface by causes now in operation. Lyell is now considered the founder of modern geology, and he promoted what is called uniformitarianism. Earlier geologists had maintained that the features of the Earth's surface resulted from vast floods, volcanic eruptions, and other so-called catastrophes. But Lyell said the most important influence was the small, slow, and steady or uniform changes that we routinely observe every day. These include things like erosion and the accumulation of silt to form deltas at the mouths of rivers. On the voyage, Darwin applied Lyell's methods and discovered that South America had been rising over a vast area. Climbing upward from the shore, he found row after row of what had formerly been beaches complete with seashells. In Chile, he saw the aftermath of a great earthquake which devastated towns and lifted parts of the coastline several feet. Lyle's book had a chapter on coral reefs, but he could not explain things like the circular rings of coral called atolls that are common in the Pacific Ocean. Darwin surmised that the atolls had begun as islands with coral growing on the shore. The islands had sunk, and the corals had grown upward and outward toward the light and toward currents that provided them with food. Finally, an island would sink out of sight, and all that could be seen was a ring of coral. Darwin turned out to be right, though he didn't know that corals received their food not only from currents, but also from light. In his autobiography, Darwin remarks, No other work of mine was begun in so deductive a spirit as this for the whole theory was thought out on the west coast of South America before I had seen a true coral reef. I had, therefore, only to verify and extend my views by a careful examination of living reefs. 
but it should be observed that I had, during the two previous years, been incessantly attending to the effects on the shores of South America of the intermittent elevation of the land, together with denudation and the deposition of sediment. This necessarily led me to reflect much on the effects of subsidence, and it was easy to replace in imagination the continued deposition of sediment by the upward growth of corals. To do this was to form my theory of the formation of barrier reefs and atolls. Here Darwin reveals the importance of theory and imagination in his research. He spent about 18 months reading and gathering data on coral reefs, but the theory required imagination and intellect to be combined with these brute facts. Darwin's geological research made him famous. Geology also taught him to think in historical terms. This helps to explain his later success as an evolutionary biologist. And in Darwin's biological research, we will again find Lyell's influence. The second volume of Lyell's Principles of Geology reached Darwin by post about ten months after he had departed from England. This volume deals mostly with what are now called ecology and biogeography, and it deals with the possibility of evolution. Ironically, one of Lyell's main goals was to defend a steady-state view of life the same view he had about rocks. Although admitting a certain amount of change, he found no evidence in the fossil record for progressive change through time. To understand Darwin and how he was influenced by Lyell and others, we need to step back to the 18th century. Through about 40 years just before the American and French revolutions, the great Swedish naturalist Carolus Linnaeus was quietly revolutionizing biology. Linnaeus brought order to the field of...